and we got back to the got back to the huts there, and uh, well, everything was okay, except for the fact we didn't have much food. Welcome to Polar Podcasts, where you'll hear stories from geologists who've spent their careers, their lives, exploring and studying the remarkable and remote geology of Greenland. Why did they become fascinated with Greenland? What were the problems and the discoveries that drove them? And what was it like working in these remote places, where few people venture, even now? I'm Julie Holtz. In this episode, we hear from Kent Brooks, Emeritus Professor from the Geological Museum in Copenhagen, about how his 50-year career studying the geology of Greenland was kindled, and about his first very memorable field season in East Greenland in 1965. Yeah, my name is Kent Brooks. I was born in Kendal in the north of England, in what in that time was the county of Westmoreland, uh, and it's on the edge of the Lake District National Park and the Yorkshire Dales National Park. So I spent a lot of time uh, uh, out of doors when I was a youngster. My interest in geology probably stems from the fact that my great-grandfather came from Ireland to work in the copper mines at Coniston. And his brother also came from Ireland to the lead mines in Swaledale. And when I was a little boy, my uh, grandmother had a large specimen of uh, fluorite on the windowsill with uh, cubes of purple fluorite about one centimetre on edge. And I was fascinated by these shining crystals and uh, while I uh, don't know what influence it had on me, I, I remember it very clearly, and it probably had some sort of influence. Also, we uh, used to spend a lot of time when I was a youngster exploring the, the old slate mines at the head of Kentmere, and uh, there's also some, some copper mines there which we uh, looked at. Well, I went to a, a local grammar school, and then then to Manchester University. And there my interest in Greenland was first kindled because my professor was Professor W.A. Deer, who at that time was a household name among among geologists because of his work on the Skergard intrusion in East Greenland. The Skergard intrusion, discovered by Bill Wager in 1931, is a remarkable pristine layered magma chamber that was fundamental in key developments of understanding of how magmas behave and crystallise in the earth. Uh, the, the famous memoir, uh, Wager and Deer, and... Uh, we were always told a lot about his exploits in Greenland and also the fact that he, uh, he, he'd done, done other things too. He'd explored in Ellesmere land, for example, uh, coincidentally. Anyhow, we'd learned about Greenland from him. He was always telling us about his exploits in Greenland and the northern and the Arctic, and it rather fascinated me. When I graduated, I was thinking of going to do geophysics at Imperial College, but... Uh, Professor Deer nobbled me and said, uh, he wouldn't do that if I were you. And by that time, they'd given me some textbooks I was supposed to read over the course of the summer. And uh, these textbooks were, were such things that said, uh, began by saying, consider the Schrodinger equation. And then there were pages and pages of, of, of algebra. And I, I thought, really, when Deer suggested this was not for me, I uh, readily agreed with him. Uh, he said, uh, I'll talk with a pal wager in Oxford and get you, he's starting a new geochemistry course. You can, you can go and do that. 
I mean, those were the days when, when you were you advanced by somebody, uh, somebody you knew, who knew somebody else and they recommended you. There were no, no interviews and form filling and all that sort of thing and qualifications. It didn't matter what qualifications you had. If your sponsor thought you were okay, then he would uh, sense, uh, they would send, uh, they would take you on. Well, anyhow, I moved to Oxford and did the geochemistry course, which was quite exciting. And, uh, but well, that, that, that means I got an interest in geochemistry. I worked at Harwell in the atomic energy place there. And when I finished my PhD, it's called the D-Phil at Oxford. When I'd finished my D-Phil, I got a job running the radiochemistry lab in the department in Oxford. And at that time, we were obsessed with looking at the geochemistry of obscure elements. And we uh, used neutron activation analysis to uh, determine very, very low levels of elements, rare elements. And uh, we um, applied this to the rocks of the Skergod intrusion, of course, among other things. Well, so my first publication was in, in radiochemistry, and uh, I was rather fascinated by the possibility of using using radioactive elements in the earth sciences. After I'd been in Oxford for a little while, we decided, a group of us decided, we'd like, like to go and see Greenland, because we'd been in contact with Professors Deere and Wager, and it had raised our interest. And so we uh, put together under the auspices of the Oxford University Exploration Club, uh, an expedition to Greenland. This was 1965. I think there were six of us. The leader of it was a chap called John Rockledge, who uh, was a professor at the University of Toronto for many years, a mineralogy professor in the University of Toronto. And another member of the expedition was a chap called Simon Winchester, who subsequently became very famous as an author and as a journalist and author. He's written many books on, on, on a, a wide range of subjects. Anyhow, we put together this expedition under the Oxford Exploration Club and decided, uh, in con- consultation with Wager, the thing to do was to go and look at the, the basalts south of Scoresby Sund, which at that time were very poorly known. In fact, they were completely unknown, I would say. And uh, it wasn't at all e- easy to get to this place in those days. In fact, it isn't at all easy to get there nowadays. But uh, we uh, stored, we got together all these stores in the basement in Oxford, and uh, we were packing, packing so-called sledging boxes, where we had uh, rations in in, uh, in in cardboard boxes that would uh, last for I think uh, five man days or something like that, or maybe seven man days. And we put all this stuff on shelves in the rock store, and then we we bought them from from wholesalers, and then we. Put, put them in the, divide them into the boxes, and Wager came down to see what we were doing, and we had all this stuff, we had jars of marmalade, and we had uh, fancy biscuits, and we had, uh, we had uh, breakfast cereals, and we had special margarine, and Wager, good Lord, what's all this? He said, in my day, we only had pemmican and porridge on expeditions. <laughs> Anyhow, we uh, stumbled upon the pro- problem, Right, just then we had to make application to the Greenland Ministry to, for permission for this expedition, and we made this application in January, and then about 14 days before we were due to leave, we got a sudden, a sudden reply from the Greenland Ministry saying that the expedition couldn't take place because the Greenland Survey were planning to do something similar, and we would overlap with them. 
So we thought we can't, we can't possibly cancel the whole lot now. We'd already sent all the equipment off by sea to Copenhagen and uh, we decided something had to be done. So Simon and I went off to Copenhagen and uh, enlisted the help of the British ambassador. I don't recall what his name was, an extremely aristocratic character who as we were talking to in the embassy. He uh, smoked cigarettes constantly, and when the, when the ash got to a certain length, a flunky came up with an ashtray and held it underneath <laughs> his cigarette for him. <laughs> Anyhow, we, uh, he decided this was quite unacceptable because it turns out that, uh, that the, agreements, the agreement with Denmark was that uh, Greenland would be open to British citizens. Whereas most it was going to be closed, it was those days it was a closed, a closed colony or a closed area, but it was open, open to uh, certain nations, including Britain. They couldn't, they couldn't forbid us going. with basically what it was, and the ambassador saw this as a, as a, you know, a feather in his cap and something where he could, he could, uh, could uh, make himself heard. So we turned up at the museum there, where in those days, Gigi, you had the top floor of the museum, and uh, the director, Ellis Gordon Rasmussen, had his room at the top of the stairs, where there was a big, a big marble plate outside taken from uh, Marmorelic. Marmorelic is an old marble quarry in West Greenland that was mined in the 1930s, near a lead zinc deposit that was later mined during the Second World War and later, and discussed by Emeritus Senior Scientist Björn Thomason in a later episode. And later on, many years later, I came to occupy the same room as, as an Emeritus. But, uh, Ellis Gord received us from the British ambassador, and uh, the British ambassador laid down in no uncertain terms that Ellis Gord was not in a position to forbid us going, and so we got, we got in that way. Anyhow, we, uh, looking back on it, I'm really uh, surprised that we didn't have some sort of serious, serious accident on this trip because we were real greenhorns. I mean, and we uh, we went went off wandering up these glaciers. Just, just amazing. Nobody fell down a crevasse and got lost. And uh, well, we really didn't know what we were doing. We were we were dumped dumped by a boat from from Scoresbysund. Nowadays, it took a uh on the south side of the fjord, of the fjord, and uh, the agreement was it would be picked up. For, uh, I think we had a, we did have a radio, yes, it would pick us up later on. But we were left left to our own devices. We walk, walked across a whole load of mountains and then up glaciers, dragging dragging a sledge after us, and uh, drilled drilled numerous basalt flows for uh, oriented paleomagnetic samples and uh, collected profiles of moon attacks. And uh, then, when we'd more or less finished, the weather set in. And I always remember this because we're at the foot of, I think, it, I think it's called Torgletcher. And yeah, it's the first major glacier set on the, on the, on the Glossville coast going south from Scoresby. And we're in a camp there. And uh, I always remember it because it was a Friday the 13th, the 13th of August. And uh, it, 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 the weather closed in and it began to blow rain, 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 cats and dogs and everything we had got wet and it was miserable. And so we decided we'd better make a retreat to the huts at Cap Brewster, which was like a day's, a day's march away. So we uh, made a cache of a lot of stuff and put the rest of it on our backs and started off across the mountains to Cap Brewster, as I say, a day's march away. As we got, we got higher and the time wore on, the uh, rain turned to, t- turned to snow and... Uh, 
it was in effect a blizzard. We had no idea where we were going. You couldn't, it was a complete whiteout, and uh, we could easily have got into trouble there. In fact, we overnighted in a cave in the, that we cut out of a snowdrift. And uh, next morning, we, it was st still visible next to nothing, but we succeeded getting down. In, and by that time, we'd got to the position where we were going along in ones and twos. It was like every man for himself. <laughs> and we got back to the got back to the huts there, and uh, well, everything was okay except for the fact we didn't have much food, and uh, it turned out we were stuck there for a long time because the the, the pack ice had come into Scoresby soon, and they couldn't come with the boat to pick us up, and so uh, I think we were there for about three weeks just hanging around and trying to subsist on what we had, like. Uh, we had an abundance of Weetabix, I remember, but not much else. Anyhow, we uh, eventually we um, were picked up by this uh, this little boat, Antelik, a fiskakuta, a fishing boat from Scoresby Sound, and we couldn't get we couldn't get out we, we could only get out by walking across the ice. And they came to us as as, as the light was going, and we uh, walked across the ice several miles, I guess, across the ice out to where they had the boat. And it was all very, very dramatic, with uh, fl flaming sunset, and uh, the ice, the ice, the ice floes were packed tightly together, and between them there was new ice. And uh, the Greenlanders who were with us, they uh, they went went across these 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 new ice without any trouble. But we were quite a bit heavier than they were, and we were also carrying carrying heavy packs on our backs. And very often we broke broke through the new ice and went down to the water, which wasn't very pleasant. And then we got onto the onto the onto the boat. We um, couldn't get back to Scoresby soon because the ice had blocked us off. So we we spent time sailing into the fjord, and we spent several days sailing in the inner reaches of Scoresby soon. And by this time we'd we'd all run out of food. There was no food at all on the boat. The only thing we had was some uh, some ye yellow label Lipton tea bags, which we had in quite abundance. And so, in desperation, we uh, managed to, managed to get hold of the colony bistura, the colony governor, and get permission to shoot a muskox, which we we managed to get to the coast of Jamison Land and uh, went running inland after the muskox herds and shot this muskox and uh, dined on that. Well, that was all very well, but we'd been starving for days on end, and uh, we, ate, we ate several pounds of meat, and uh, this didn't do us any good. And on top of that, as we were now, we, now we could sail along the coast, and as we were going across Herry Inlet, there was a powerful wind coming down Herry Inlet and steep waves, and the combination of the muskox meat and the, uh, the, 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 the sharp seas brought on the worst bout of seasickness I ever had, even though it was only a short distance across that fjord. I was violently ill, lying on the deck with waves coming over me, and uh, been violently sick. Anyhow, we got to Scorpius on okay, and uh, anchored up there, and we thought we'd uh, live on the Buscox, but we weren't allowed to do that. It was taken off us and given to the old folks' home. So uh, we're back on our own rations again. Now, uh, the ship couldn't get to Scoresby Sund. It was stuck up by Denmark Town somewhere in heavy ice, and so they had to do without the ship that autumn. And uh, that meant that we were stuck in Scoresby Sund. Well, after a while, after we'd been there a couple of weeks or so, kicking our heels, not doing anything, wondering what the hell we were going to do, uh, somebody told us it was possible to get a plane in that could take us out. 
And so we managed to get hold of this chap from Iceland, a chap called Paul Paulson, who came with a, a beachcraft a beachcraft, and landed on a strip about, I guess, two, two, two hours' walk out of Scoresbysund in a, in a flat valley. I always remember walking, walking out there and uh, sitting, sitting by the side of this, this, artificial, uh, this natural runway and the wind... The wind was blowing, it was bitterly cold, and we uh, were burning heather to try and keep warm, and we weren't at all sure whether the plane would turn up. Anyhow, in the end, we saw we saw it was getting getting rather dark by this time. We saw we saw a light in the sky, and the plane came down, taxied taxied along the alluvial flats there, and came to a halt, and we jumped in. In fact, we could only only half of us could go in it, so we took half of us to the the strip at Mestersvik. And then went back for the other half, and then he had another plane at uh, uh, another plane at Mestersvik would take the whole party of us to Iceland. It was interesting when we got to Mestersvik, the first party. They, uh, of course, they had a they had a big meal for us. Typical hospitality of these places. Yeah. I remember it was uh, some kind of duck, and it was delicious. But uh, the cook at Mestersvik was a chap called Sir Gerica, and. Uh, the men at Mestersvik complained bitterly about him because uh, because they didn't get the sort of food they wanted. They said he gave them fancy food and all they wanted was frigadella and uh, <laughs> tippish dance mad. Meatballs and typical Danish food. And it turned out later on that Søren Kjernicke was voted as the best cook in Denmark. He went went opened a restaurant in Gotteskæler. A main street in central Copenhagen. And this was the best restaurant in Copenhagen. And he'd uh, work, worked for the, uh, the, the Greenland Television. The Greenland Telecommunications Company. Just to get, it, get it experience of cooking for large numbers of people, apparently. Anyhow, that was that. We got back from, from Scoresby, from there, uh, all in one piece, so to speak. And, uh, we, but we didn't get the sample until the, until the following year, when the next trip got in. So we couldn't really work on it which was a, a great hindrance. And by the time we got the specimen, our interest in the whole thing had rather lapsed. I'm Julie Hollis, and you've been listening to Polar Podcasts. In the next episode, we hear from Emeritus Senior Scientist and Prospector Bjorn Thomason about what drew him to Greenland and kept him coming back for 42 summers. 